In the name of the one true and living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Please be seated. Well, as, as they say, what had happened was, and so the reason we didn't have any reasons this morning is because what had happened was, um, most of you know the first Sunday of the month is normally Youth Sunday, where we would have the children come up and have a children's sermon and have kids read and all of those things, but we've been so out of whack that I've also been out of whack, so let me apologize to our youth and children. It's not that I have forgotten you, I just didn't remember you, and I'll let you chew on that one for a while and see how it works out. Uh, Anyway, God willing, we'll return to our Youth Sunday in the way that we know and love it soon. Well, it's hard for us to appreciate the importance of the temple in the life of ancient Israel, Largely, of course, because it doesn't exist anymore. So naturally, things have changed over time pretty significantly. If you've ever been to the Holy Land and made a pilgrimage, you've seen a scaled-down model of what the ancient city might have looked like, and there's the temple itself. And, and it actually, it's, it's large and small at the same time, right? It actually kind of takes you about a minute to walk around the, the perimeter of, of that um, of that model, and um, so there's a depiction of what um, the temple would have looked like in in that time. And I'll leave that up as I read uh, what Anglican Bishop N.T. Wright wrote in description of the significance of the temple. This is what he said. Bishop Wright says, the temple was the beating heart of Jerusalem. It wasn't just, as it were, a church on a street corner. It was the center of worship and music, of politics and society, of national celebration and of mourning. He quips, it was also the place where you would find more animals, both alive and dead, than anywhere else. But, he says, towering above all these, it was, of course, the place where Israel's God had promised to live in the midst of his people. It was, therefore, the focal point of the nation and of the national way of life. So holding that image in our minds as well as we can, let's insert another layer of imagery to put even more color on the picture. For this morning's gospel tells us that the Passover of the Jews was at hand. So here's another picture. This is an artist's rendering of what the Passover festival might have looked like, looking down from what we call the Mount of Olives into uh, the gate, into the temple, and you can see the city sprawling out and the city walls around it. The Passover, of course, was the greatest of all the feasts of Israel, for it represented the time when God delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. He, as we know by the work of his own hand, had set the Israelites free from all kinds of atrocities, injustice, unrighteousness, oppression, both physical and economic, hard living and terrible, terrible labor conditions. So in its pure form, we can see the beauty and the significance of the temple and the Passover working together. The feast of the Passover represented God's victory, the victory of freedom over slavery. And the temple, towering above the landscape, was a perpetual, visible, indelible sign of that victory. No wonder the temple was the focal point of the nation and of the national way of life. 
The temple was the place where God's name and fame, as it were, was proclaimed to the nations. And the Passover was the principal feast that reminded both Israel and also all of the nations of that fact. In fact, the Passover was so important that faithful Jews came from all over to celebrate. And that's why I chose this picture, because it's estimated that Jerusalem might swell to two million people at the time of the Passover. All of the faithful coming from everywhere to worship Yahweh, the one true and living God. Can you imagine that scene in your mind? To meet the needs of these pilgrims on their journey, well, you just might expect to see certain things. After all, if you are carrying foreign currency, you might expect to find money changers so people could buy things locally. That wasn't weird or out of place. That was a normal, natural part of the goings-on. And if you were unable to bring animals with you for the sacrifice, or if the animals you brought with you had died along the way, you might expect to see people selling animals so that the faithful could make their sacrifices. There's nothing wrong with that, right? Everybody's got to make a living. You're just helping people meet their needs when they arrive. In fact, you could even say you're doing them a favor. More than just helping them meet their material needs, you're actually helping them get what they need to worship God, right? So why in the world did Jesus get so mad? What made him so angry about all of this? After all, this was supposed to be a time, as we said, of national celebration. The greatest feast, the greatest God, the greatest edifice in the world, and you, you're just serving the greater good to the glory of God, right? Right? In fact, if anyone should get mad, it, well, it might be you. After all, what would you do if some guy came into your office one day and he came right up to your desk and he flipped it over right there in front of you? And what if he took your profits and he poured them out on the floor right there in front of you in your office? And what if that same guy fashioned a whip out of some cords and he took the very source of your income, of your livelihood, and he drove it right out of your office building right there in front of everyone? What would you do? Would you sit there and take it? Be careful how you answer because, pun intended, there are two sides to every coin. So let's flip that coin and ask this question. What about God? What should, what should, not would, what should God do? If God were gazing down upon his earthly office, so to speak, what should he do as he looked down at the temple so strikingly beautiful on the outside, yet so corrupted on the inside that it was striking against the very purpose for which it was made pure worship? Provoking Jesus to say, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. No, it was not so much that there were money changers at the temple. And it's not so much that there were animals being made available for purchase for the sacrifice. It's the way they were doing it. And the implications of how they were doing it that were causing the problem. That's what aroused what we call the righteous indignation of God. And that's why Jesus turned over the tables. Take the money changers, for example. The commission, the commission that the money changers were charging equaled a full day's wage. 
an exorbitant tax for a peasant to pay who had, in fact, come to celebrate God. The only right word we can use there to describe what's going on is usury, abuse, economic abuse of the poor who had, in fact, come to worship God. And what about these animals that were being sold for sacrifice? Well, here's an interesting tidbit. If you had acquired or purchased your animal outside of the temple somewhere, well, that animal was likely to be declared unfit, unclean, unsuitable for sacrifice. On the other hand, if you just buy your animal inside the temple walls for a mere 15 times more than the usual cost, mind you, well, those animals that were purchased inside the temple, they are sure to pass inspection. Naturally, they would, wouldn't they? And as bad as all of that was, there was even something else. All of this buying and selling took place in the outer court of the temple, what we would call the court of the Gentiles. Now, this is really significant because that, as you know, is the only place, it's the only place the Gentiles could be inside the temple courts. Think of it this way. It's the only place they could meditate It's the only place they could pray. It's the only place they could worship. It's the only place that they, at least symbolically, could touch the very presence of that one true and living God here on this earth. Think about the impact of that. Maybe now we see what's wrong. What was meant for the praise of God was being marred and maligned for the profit of man. A festival meant to manifest the glory of God was being grossly abused by his own people. And now, my friends, let's go even a little deeper than that. You see, an interesting thing happens to many people when they think about God. Many people are actually okay with God cracking the whip over the injustices of the world. That is, as long as God is dealing with someone else over there who is acting unjustly. But what about when God decides to turn over the tables in our lives? Most of us are okay with a distant, impersonal God who deals with injustices out there, but what about the personal God who deals with the injustices in our hearts and in our minds and in our lives? And friends, the fact of the matter is this. You cannot have one without the other. God is going to deal with the injustices of the world wherever he finds them, period, As the Apostle Paul instructs us in Romans chapter 2, God shows no partiality. He says, For all who have sinned apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. In that well-known verse, Romans 3, 23, Paul declares, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Why do we read the Ten Commandments every Sunday twice today? It's a reminder It's a reminder that God, in fact, does have an absolute, moral, objective, righteous standard for justice in this world, and the world needs to know it. Think about the lawless rancor that we're experiencing in our culture right now and around the world. And so the recitation of the Ten Commandments is also a remembrance. It's a remembrance to us that we don't live up to it, even on our best day. My favorite Christian artist, long tragically deceased now, Rich Mullins, we are not as strong as we think we are. We are not as strong as we think we are. So what's the good news? 
What's the good news in all of this? The good news is that this God, who is an infinite God of justice, is also an immeasurable God of mercy. So that when we ourselves do something that is unjust or we ourselves act in a way that is unrighteous, Christ has come to set us free from condemnation. Now, I don't want you to hear that as another sentence in a sermon. I want you to hear that as a truth that God speaks into our lives. When we act unjustly and unrighteously, Christ has come to set us free, to set us free from condemnation and the guilt and the shame and the humiliation and the isolation and all of those things that come along with it. As the Apostle Paul also testifies in today's readings from Romans chapter 7, we heard just a minute ago, the law of God is holy, it is righteous, it is good. Paul says, I cannot keep it because I am sold to the slavery of sin. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Answer, thanks be to God that we are set free through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul says, for the law of the Spirit has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What does that mean? It means that guilt, that shame, that embarrassment, that humiliation, that isolation that I was just talking about that comes from our injustice and our unrighteous actions. It means that that weight can be lifted off of us. That burden can be taken from us. The Apostle John testifies, if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Said another way, Jesus has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And my friends, that's not just good news, that's great news. The law of the Spirit has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Our collect from this morning said it so well. Heavenly Father, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And all that to say, my friends, that it's all about worship. That's what Jesus was doing. He had come to purify what was being defiled for the purpose of worship. How does that apply to us today? In exactly the same way, God is working to remove every obstacle, to tear down every wall, to break down every barrier in our lives that we might experience the fullness of his presence and enjoy the freedom of his mercy. I want to do something a little different this morning. Because we have all been bound up. We've all been bound up by this pandemic for a while. More than a while, a year. We've been bound up by this pandemic for a year. And maybe, just maybe, I'm preaching to myself, but maybe, just maybe, you've also been bound up by some other things as well. Maybe there have been some areas in your lives where you've been building walls. And, and let me just say this. I've talked to a lot of us and a lot of others of us. We're all struggling just to keep a consistent devotion right now. I'm struggling. It's hard to maintain consistency in the midst of chaos. So it's interesting about these money changers and these animal sellers I got to believe they didn't start off with bad intentions. 
the changing of the money, the selling of the animals. In fact, if you can go back to when the temple was first being rebuilt, they probably started off with very good intentions. But you see, it's so easy, isn't it, for the world, the flesh, and the devil to grab a hold of something that's good, to malign the things that are meant for the glory of God alone, and slowly and steadily take us to a dastardly and even deadly place. That reminds us of the promise, and I want us to hang on to this this morning. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Would you like to say that? If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. One more time. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. So I said I want to end the sermon a little differently. Never done this before. Well, I haven't, I haven't. I've sung and played on my guitar before, but I've never done it right after a sermon. And what I want to do before we go on to the creed and the prayers and the rest of the liturgy is I want to create just a little bit of time and space to allow God to break in, to allow the Holy Spirit to visit us, to just shake up the rote repetition, if you will, of the liturgy, and there's nothing wrong with the liturgy. I'm its biggest fan. But let's let God in in a different way. And if you're carrying any burden, any weight, anything on you that you want God to lift off of you, just allow this to be a time of worship for you where you can give God whatever it is that's burdening you in your heart, in your mind. Maybe it's just the weight of the pandemic. Maybe it's the fear of this or that or the other. And maybe it's something else, some, some sin that you've been carrying around and you just don't know how to let go of it. Let's just let God in. And if you'll stand and sing with me the song we all know and love. This is your time to be with God. When the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come longing just to bring longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart I'll give you more than a song I'll give you more than a song for a song in itself is not what you have required You're sinking deeper within Through the way things appear You're looking into my heart I'm coming back I'm coming back to the heart of worship And it's all about you it's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. When it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. Let's go even deeper in the second verse. King of endless worth, no one could express how much you deserve. Though I'm weak and poor, though I'm weak and poor, all I have is yours, every single breath. I'll bring you more.
more than a song For a song in itself is not what you have required You search much deeper You search much deeper within Through the way things appear You're looking into my heart I'm coming back to the heart of worship And it's all about you It's all about you, Jesus I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it When it's all about you It's all about you, Jesus I'll bring you more than a song For a song in itself is not what you have required you search much deeper within through the way things appear you're looking into my heart i'm coming back i'm coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about you it's all about you jesus I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it When it's all about you It's all about you, Jesus So whatever God's doing in your heart right now Just let him settle it And bring you to that place of peace And forgiveness I'm coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. When it's all about you, it's all about you, Jesus. It's all about you, Jesus.